Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome. It's a It's a new liturgical year for us. We are in year C. And uh, as we discuss what we're going to talk about, we are looking at the texts, actually, of the gospel this Advent. Last year, we looked at Isaiah um, for year B. But this year, year C, we're headed into the gospel text from Luke. So um, today's passage is Luke 21, verses 25 through 37. Yeah, thanks, Christy. And, you know, our our gospel lesson takes us to the conclusion of the discourse about the coming of the Son of Man. We saw the introduction to that a couple of weeks ago in Mark. But as we enter the season of Advent, it may be helpful to touch base a little bit on the nature of the revised common lectionary readings for the season. Um, According to the introduction to the lectionary by the Consultation on Common Text, that's the organization that put it together. That's who makes it up. <laughs> yeah, and you can find that at commontexts.org. Uh, the readings in Advent actually presuppose an eschatological event, meaning that they point forward to the final coming of Christ and the fulfillment of the reign of Christ. And we see this typically in the epistle readings as I've looked over them, but all three cycles begin with the lesson that we are discussing right. today, the conclusion to the discourse on the coming of the Son of Man. In, in year A, it's Matthew's version. In year B, it's Mark's mm-hmm. version. In year C, it's Luke's version. And why are we starting at the end? This doesn't seem to make sense. I know it doesn't, right? So that's the question. You know, why in the season of preparing to celebrate the birth of Christ are we looking at readings that point us toward his final coming? I would say the answer is partly theological and partly practical. Uh, The birth of Christ marks a definitive intervention in the affairs of the world on God's part, as does the final coming of Christ. So the similarity of those two events in terms of God's intervention in the affairs of the world, I think, is a theological uh, rationale. But more practically, the themes of watchfulness in the New Testament um, pretty much all point us forward mm. to the final coming. So if we're going to take something from the New Testament that talks about watchfulness, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be related to the, the final coming of Christ. So this is... This is interesting that we see this this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or something about this. What uh, kind of put that into context? Why are they all covering this? <clears throat> well, it's interesting. Yeah, as you say, because you know, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they all follow the same basic outline of Jesus' ministry. However, we you know all you have to do is is look at a good synopsis or look at a good chart and find that. Um, Matthew and Luke diverge significantly from Mark on some in some respects, and, and they all have their own uniqueness. But it's funny that in in this discourse about the coming of the Son of Man in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all follow the same plan for the discourse, and so the topics addressed track one another. Um, now, when we compare the details, however, we find that Matthew and Mark have more overtly apocalyptic themes. Mm-hmm. So, for example. Uh, they speak of the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, uh, right. whereas Luke speaks about um, armies surrounding Jerusalem right. so as, 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 as a warning. So, and, and so Luke tends to tone that down and focus more on what these things mean for the daily living mm-hmm. and discipleship for the community he's addressing. Well, and that makes sense with Luke and what we know about Luke. I think Luke it does. I think Luke's it makes gospel. sense with, 
with the way he approaches things. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, it's interesting as you're saying this though. Um, the collapsing here does not really work. Then, I mean, I think there'd right. be a tendency to collapse this and assume it's all the same. And of course, my reformers will do that. And it's not. And here, we're really getting a that lens really becomes important. Luke's for understanding lens is, this. is a little is is significantly different from Matthew and mm-hmm. Mark. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, and actually, um, not only does Luke diverge from Matthew and Mark in terms of, of some of the big picture parts, but I actually, so even this, you can find this, even the actual detail of the, of the discourse, um, Matthew and Mark provide a very full account. Luke seems to be kind of summarizing in that he leaves out some details, but then also we'll find that while, while Matthew, Mark on the one hand and Luke on the other hand, they might talk about the same theme. Um, Matthew and Mark are together, and Luke kind of goes off on his own and crafts his own uh, version of it. So it's kind of interesting to see how, you know, in terms of gospel origins and how Luke is is working with this material. You know, as you're saying this, I think people, um, some people today, and certainly some of the people in the 16th century, saw this as kind of um, a prediction, kind of like uh, things were going to happen in a specific way. And they, they were basing part of this on that some of the things had already happened, so the destruction yeah. of the temple, and therefore th- we are just waiting to see these exact things happen. So when Luke has a different, I mean, Luke isn't as detailed, I think is what mm-hmm. you pointed out mm-hmm. to me earlier. Yeah, yeah. Does well, he that... changes some of the details, and he summarizes in mm-hmm. some respects, but he also shifts it around a little bit from from that uh, sort of apocalyptic mindset to more of, mm-hmm. you know, what does this mean for daily living and, and discipleship? Yeah, yeah. I think what's what's fascinating to me about that is, I think a lot of people today still assume it's all the same, so their mm-hmm. mind doesn't really understand where Luke's position is. So I think this is a really... A, a, I'm calling it a nuance, although I'm not sure that's fair, yeah, but this no, is an I important, think it's important um, kind of lens. If you're looking through that Luke and lens yeah. to draw out, I mean, to me, this is a really kind of an important piece. The, the, I, I, would say, I would say that the whole uh, notion of finding in the, the discourse in the Son of Man in any of the Gospels uh, a timeline of events whereby you could know that the end is near, that mistakes the purpose of it. Yeah, and, yeah. And it tries to press it into into a, a space where it's not really meant to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I do get that question a lot from folks about uh, what scripture is. It is history, but it's not history like the Bible has some kind of broad overview of the exact events of mm-hmm. of the right. day, right? There's a lot of people want to want to want to want to force that kind of lens on Ex- the Bible. Exactly. They want to they want to look at it as if you know even that the prophets are predicting the future. That, that's and, it. Yeah. You know there are some there are some predictions of of future events, especially near future events in the prophets, and they also speak about you know in times kind right, of events like right. the day of the Lord, but there's really no, no sense of a timeline. And, and the other thing about it is, is that I would, I would say, I would insist that all of those prophetic um, statements had a message for the people of the day. Right. I, yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think that, I guess, I think as people come to this, they, for some reason, this language scares people into mm-hmm. All of a sudden, jumping outside of the the lens they have been reading the Bible 
with or even today. That I was mean, always my today. problem with with reading the book of Revelation as a prediction of end times exactly. events. Because to, in my mind, that makes it totally irrelevant to the people of the first century. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or any other century when, right. when this other than the one the last, you know, era, you know, the last generation right. before the return of Christ. <laughs> so that's a very long way to say that as Alan's looking at this today, he's going to look at it kind of again through this unique space of luke and luke's audience at this at that time and i think that's going to help us um make sense of this kind of text that we actually don't really like getting into well i think it'll make more sense than trying to use it as a timetable for predicting Ah, the coming uh, of christ uh, (laughs) yeah okay so let's go ahead and jump into specifically today's text Yeah, so our text for today begins with Jesus' statement about the coming of the Son of Man. And in all three synoptic Gospels, this passage begins with the so-called cosmic portents that will attend that event. Now, Luke compacts this statement. He says, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars in Luke 21, 25. Matthew and Mark provide a more complete citation. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, which is a, a combined citation from Isaiah 13, 10 and Isaiah 34, 4. And there's some other similar language in Ezekiel and Joel as well. And this language was used in the Hebrew Bible for the cosmic portents that the prophets said would accompany the day of the Lord or the coming of God to mm-hmm. reign on earth. Mm-hmm. And so we might be tempted to read this as apocalyptic language because it's cosmic portents, but you know, this language predates the rise of apocalyptic literature by several centuries. Mm-hmm. And so I think the point is that when God comes, even the creation will tremble. And that's, yeah. a, that's a theme that is, that's found throughout the Hebrew Bible. I think about the scene at Sinai when the people are meeting with God. You know, there's all right. kinds of, there are all kinds of things going on, you know, um, the shaking of the, of the mountains and the, and the right. clouds right. and the cloud right. that surrounds the mountain and things like that. You know, as I was, I was thinking about these these cosmic portents, I mean, these are things that historically have happened in terms of like eclipses, oh, yeah. I know. and I know. we were lucky enough to see the to see the solar eclipse not too long ago. And we had on our special <laughs> glasses and everything, and we understand the science today. But back then, I know it was clearly these were messages from God, portents from God. So you could see how this becomes. Part the sun of is darkened, right? Sun is darkened. How do you make sense of that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, other than great fear. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of, I think this is kind of cool because this isn't made up stuff. This is stuff that ha- they have experienced or has, uh, if they haven't experienced, have, have been passed down sure. through the ages, sure. you know? Sure. So it's pretty, it's, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> well, and again, in the Hebrew Bible, this is language for the day of Yahweh, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, as we've seen before, here the New Testament takes over that language and oh, applies yes. it to the coming yes. of Christ. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that definitely makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the next part, though, is unique to Luke. Yep. Uh, this, and, and this is something that really I just I just have discovered in, in, in my preparation for today that, you know, there are several of these places in in Luke's version of the discourse where Matthew and Mark go one way and Luke goes another Mm way. (laughs) And so in in the second half of 2125 and all of 2126, this is unique 
to Luke's version of the discourse. On, earth, on the earth, distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. And, you know, there's nothing even remotely resembling that in Matthew huh. and Mark's version of this text. So it would seem that perhaps uh, Luke is uh, summarizing the theme of the coming afflictions and maybe using the traditional language of the Septuagint. Uh, for example, Psalm 65, 7 speaks of the tumult of the nations in connection with the roaring of the waves. And in Isaiah, darkness and distress accompanies the judgment of God at the hands of an invading army. And especially, we see this in Isaiah 8. Now, this is as part of Isaiah 6 through 9, which is the Emmanuel text, right? Oh, and, mm-hmm. and so, in Isaiah 8... In the face of the persistently stubborn disobedience of the people, God has summoned the Assyrians and has directed Isaiah to bind up the testimony so that when they look for a word from God, all they will see is Isaiah and his children, whose names refer to the coming judgment, as signs and portents. That's the language used in Mm -hmm. Isaiah 8. Mm -hmm. And when they seek relief, all they will find is distress and darkness. So this the language that that Luke uses in these two verses seems to be sort of traditional language from the Septuagint. Right. And I think it pulls away from um, maybe this attempt to try to to pinpoint specific things. It seems to have a a broader a broader uh, imagery that he pulls back. And I asked you earlier, but I why is Luke pulling so much from these v- images of the Old Testament? Yeah, and you know, if that's a good question, because um, you know, if you if you compare Luke and Acts, it seems that you know whoever the author of of Luke and Acts was, um, this was someone who was well versed in the Septuagint, mm-hmm. because you find um, you find a lot of quotations from the Septuagint and and from the Hebrew Bible. And especially in the book of Acts, as, as, as Luke is crafting, you know, particularly the, the speeches mm-hmm. of the apostles, you know, it's, it's clear that he's, you know, nobody was there making a verbatim, making verbatim notes. Mm-hmm. Luke has, has sort of taken the gist of, of, his, of, of the tradition of the church, and he's filled it out with quotes right. that come straight from the Septuagint. So it seems pretty clear, I think, that, that, that the author of Luke and Acts was pretty well-versed in the Septuagint. This is, this is interesting, and I, I, I'm pulling this out, but, I, um, you know, when I've been working with my folks at the church, they tell me that Luke is a doctor, and they're quite <laughs> sure of that. And, I mean, it, to the point of it's, I, I guess, how do you address that? Well, so we have, so we have references in the early church fathers to the origins of all the Gospels. Um, the question is, to what extent is the language reflecting an early tradition and thus maybe pointing us in the right direction, or to what extent is the language somewhat legendary? So, um, for example, um, one, of the, one of the traditions about Mark was that he was recording the preaching of Peter. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. The, the tradition that Luke, the sometime companion of Paul, has been identified as the author of Luke and Acts. And that could very well be true. Um, uh, he's called a physician by Paul in one of his letters. I forget which one right now. But basically, you know, most of this tradition was de- derived from some incidental statements in the New Testament itself. 
So we don't have independent verification for this kind of tradition. So, you know, in, in a lot of cases, I would have said, you know, like in a New Testament class, you know, the tradition is fairly unanimous that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. We don't really have any specific evidence that contradicts that. So that's as good of an understanding right. as any. And the same thing is true for Luke. We don't have really have any any information to the contrary. Now, what happened with this traditional, um, these, these traditions about the authors of the Gospels was that they were elaborated on in the history of the church. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I can't remember. I used to be able to cite the whole tradition about Luke, and I can't remember all of it now. But Luke was a, a physician. He was from Boethius. He, he, he died at the age of 84. You know, all mm-hmm. these other details that, you know, we have no idea uh, where that stuff came from. And so, you it know. It seems that it's kind of, it has at least made its way to the present because these yes. people come with quite certainty that they know this and it's well again the assumption is made that the luke right of 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 luke and acts is the same luke and but who knows that's a pretty big jump it, and, well and, i mean it right. may be right but but i i think it's i think it's important to probably keep just that um, sense of, but we, we really aren't sure. Right. And I, I, always, I, when I was, when I would teach my New Testament classes, I would tell people, formally speaking, all of the gospels are anonymous because mm-hmm. the titles are added later. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're based on the church tradition regarding the identification of the authors. Right. And so, you know, strictly speaking, all of the gospels are anonymous. So that's where we have to start. From. Right. And then we can say, well, the church tradition is unanimous that Luke wrote these, this book. So right. and in the absence of any other information, that's as good of an understanding good. as any, but we, we can't be certain. Right. So let's, let's go, let's go on with, with this. Yeah. Luke's summation of the coming distress continues in verse 26. He says, people will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. And the idea of fainting is one that is common in the Psalms, but the precise Greek terminology in the Septuagint varies. So we can't point to any one particular passage in the Septuagint that, that Luke would be drawing on. But just simply, I think it's important to note that that language is very common in the Psalms. And so mm-hmm. the fact that people, that, that, that Luke speaks about people fainting from fear, you know, that, that makes sense. Um, and, um, you know, you, you've talked about, you have this word here for, for fainting. Yeah, apopsuko. Which, which you, you had told me we see only once in the New Testament. This is the only place it occurs in the New Testament. And in fact, it only occurs here with this meaning in the whole Greek Bible. That includes the Septuagint. Septu- that's what and, I wondered. It's not even Testament. in a Septuagint. It's, it's, it is used once in the Septuagint of, of, of First Maccabees, but with the meaning of someone passing away, wow. expiring. Yeah. So this, is, this, is a, uh, this tells us a little bit about Luke's about Luke and maybe his vocabulary. Well, and uh, um, you know, we were we were having this conversation earlier, but um, yeah, uh, one of the things you find if you dig into the Greek of Luke and Acts is that there are a lot of words in the New Testament that are only used once mm-hmm. that occur in Luke and Acts, and this is one of them. And so I think I think a lot of people have tried to draw conclusions based on that. I think the only conclusion we can draw is that the author of Luke and Acts had a very uh, um, uh, had a quite a varied and and uh, um, sophisticated vocabulary mm-hmm. in Greek. Okay. Okay. Um, 
So again, it would seem that here Luke is summarizing the afflictions of that time using biblical ideas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the verse, Luke's account returns to the pattern of Matthew and Mark, for the powers of the heavens will, will be, be shaken. shaken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we move on to the Son of Man um, uh, uh, references. Yes. The, the, the next segment of the discourse in all three Gospels is the actual statement of the coming of the Son of mm-hmm. Man. And the actual statement itself in all three Gospels is a quotation from Daniel 7, ah. 13, and 14. Although, again, Luke kind of shortens it up. Uh, Matthew and Mark quote it more fully. Um, and in, in Luke's version, uh, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting that the Jewish people had not considered this to be a messianic text. There just doesn't seem to be any indication of that. And I think we see this as apparent mm-hmm. from the high priest reaction to Jesus when Jesus cites this verse in response to the question, are you the Messiah? Mm-hmm. When, he's, when he's being right. tried before the Sanhedrin and oh, before the yeah. chief priests, the chief priests asked him directly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers by quoting uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 in, in Mark 14, 61 through 64. And in response, they accuse him of blasphemy. That's 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 the basis for the accusation mm-hmm. of blasphemy. So they they wh- whoever this son of man figure was in Daniel, they did not see him as a messianic. They did not see it as a messianic figure. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what reaction the disciples may have had to Jesus making such a statement is unknown. I mean, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man throughout the Gospels, and I would think that reflects historical tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to be constantly confused by that language. <laughs> so again, I'm yeah. not sure whether they would have um, caught on by now in Luke's gospel. But I would say that by the time Luke's gospel was written, the concept of Jesus as the Son of Man, based on Daniel 7, 13 through 14, was well established in the Christian community. Okay, okay. So... Let's keep going. Is he consistently heading on with Matthew and Mark? Well, he, again, diverges from Matthew and Mark here, um, both of whom recount a statement about the Mm. gathering of the elect. In in place of that, Luke has a statement that says, Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you compare that with Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark talking about the gathering of the elect, well, that's kind of a reassuring concept, you know, that, that God's people will be gathered in right but um this is a more general kind of encouragement Mm -hmm. you know when you see these things all these these you know um distress and the nation among the nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world when you see these things luke says don't panic don't fear but stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing drawing near so what an I mean, this again kind of fits with Luke's space of inclusion in his gospel, I think, that you don't always get in the others, or at least not mm-hmm. in this kind of um, framework. I keep, my brain keeps going, though, to my, you know, my, my reformers who are collapsing this. And they yeah. really like to, you know, the, 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 it's the just good the reform elect. tradition, like to go for the elect. Yes, and, of course. Um, so this 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 verse actually causes a lot of problems with these folks. I'm sure so, it does on a lot of levels. Well, and I think again we see here Luke is trying to frame this discourse more in terms of encouragement to faithful discipleship yep. in daily living, despite the difficulties recounted mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So now we're headed on to the fig tree. Yeah. <laughs> so tree. the next segment, again, the next segment of the discourse and all three. Have you seen a fig three... tree? Have you ever seen a fig tree? Oh, yes, of course. Have I seen a f- I don't think I've seen a fig tree. My, my um, in-laws were from Mississippi and okay. they, had fig, they had a fig tree in their backyard because they made, they did all kinds of things with figs. They made fig preserves, which are amazing, by the way, if you've never had them. The you only thing I've had out. is a fig Newton. No, no, fig preserves. <laughs> These are freshly canned okay. fig preserves. They're okay. to die for. Really? Oh, okay. yeah, they're amazing. Uh, I probably have seen one, but I didn't know it was a fig tree. Anyway, yeah. I, 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 I move on there. But for those of us that don't have this particular imagery in our own experience, it's... Um, it, a fig tree, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a smaller size tree. It looks like a fruit tree. It's pretty thick branches and foliage, um, kind of heavy green leaves, almost like a smaller version of a magnolia leaf. Huh. Um, and, you know, you, you have the fruit, you have the figs mm-hmm. hanging, from, hanging from the tree. Um, but, yeah, and, and figs were grown in the, in the Mediterranean right. world so, and probably still are. So, right. so it makes sense that Jesus would use the fig tree. Okay. So, so again, in all three Gospels, the next segment of the discourse is the lesson of the fig tree. And Jesus uses the example of a fig tree sprouting leaves as a sign that summer mm-hmm. is near. That doesn't take any great prophetic right. insight. Yeah. Uh, but so in, in this context, the corresponding lesson is, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, I would say this statement seems strange for a couple of reasons. First, in all three synoptic gospels, Jesus tells them that the presence of afflictions and even false messiahs does not mean that the end is near, first of all, right? Yes. And so I think part of what's going on is that in that part of the discourse, Luke not only mentions nation rising against nation and earthquakes and famines and plagues, but also signs and portents from heaven. So it would seem that the mingling of the warning of the impending disasters in connection with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the cosmic signs and portents connected with the coming of the Son of Man you know, these are these are commingled in Luke a little more consistently all the way through. So, mm-hmm. so unlike in Matthew and Mark, the cosmic portents really only accompany the final coming. Right. In Luke, Luke has kind of blended them all together, and, and so this we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this discourse. You know, you have you have you have the discourse functioning on two levels. On one level, it's it's a Jesus is warning the disciples about the coming events, right. you know, where the Rome is going to finally, you know, have had enough of the rebellion of the Jews and, and is going to destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. Um, but then you also have this idea of the coming of the Son of Man and what's going to happen in connection with that. And they're kind of mixed together in this apocalyptic discourse. Um, but in Matthew and Mark, you know, the signs that attend the coming of the destruction of the Jerusalem, you know, those are not the end, right? This is something that's going to happen, but that's not the end. Mm-hmm. But then you have the signs that accompany the coming of the Son of Man. But in Luke, Luke seems to kind of mix it all together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so it seems like Luke is, you know, um, again, in his compositional uh, framework, he's he sees them really a little bit more inter, interwoven, these two events more interwoven than the others, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I guess what makes me say why? I just why would he do this? And I I think um, to me, I think it, it makes sense that Luke is playing down, trying. I think Luke generally seems to try to play down 
any kind of apocalyptic speculations. And he, he generally seems to be trying to avoid, you know, the notion of being able to predict, you know, events that are going to point to the end. And, and I, to my, in my mind, that seems to make as much sense mm. as anything. That, that seems to be his part of his lens, is that he's, he's taking this away from the language of apocalyptic and, well, and, and really sense. putting it more in a, in a sense of, you know, this is a prophetic discourse that has a message for you, and this is okay. the message, which like is, mm-hmm. you know, when you see these things happening, lift yep. up your heads for your redemption is uh, That makes sense. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. So... Um, Let's let's keep on moving through this. Um, yeah, the other reason this I find this statement strange is that it would seem that when they see the Son of Man coming with power and glory, then they could know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, the statement is even more difficult in Matthew and Mark. In Matthew and Mark, they simply say, you know that he is near at the very gates. And, you know, the idea is, well, when you see the Son of Man come, then he's near. Well, is he has he come or is he near? Right. <laughs> so there's a, a bit of a confusion sure, it's confusing. in that. Confusing. Uh-huh. And, and I think I think in Matthew and Mark, what they're saying is, you know, he's at the very gates. He's right here. So he's right. they're trying to say he's right here. He's right here. But but the language is a little bit confusing. Oh, so he, he cleans it up. I think Luke does try to resolve that by cleaning up the language, and he he changes it to the kingdom of God is near. So it makes more sense really to say mm-hmm. that when the Son of Man comes, that the kingdom is near because the idea would be then that the, his coming is just the beginning of the process of establishing the kingdom of God. So, and there's more, there's more confusion. So what's, what comes up next here? <laughs> so, we, yeah, we kind of go from the frying pan to the fire here. The next statement is, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. On the surface of it, it seems pretty clear that Jesus is saying, that he would come in power and glory during the lifetime of those who are present with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about the, the, how the, there was a crisis uh, among the believers in Thessalonica uh, because they were afraid that those who had died right. um, might be left out. And, you know, I think, I think there was a sense in some circles that they believed that Jesus was going to return within their own lifetime. Right. And you can mm-hmm. even see a progression in Paul's letters. In Paul's early letters, yes, you seem you to see, see that that, that just <laughs> urgency that, that mm-hmm. it's going to be any time. And in some of his later letters, you see more of a sense of well, we don't really know. And 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 whenever he comes, you know that you know that we'll leave that in God's hands, it's, so to speak. It seems like that this word generation might be confusing or might be understood that maybe generation has a a different meaning well and it could you know some have some have simply i mean because obviously jesus didn't return within the lifetimes of the one people standing there some have simply concluded that jesus was mistaken you know and that's not uncommon right uh but uh, i mean one of the ways people have tried to deal with this is to say that generation is meant to be taken figuratively either referring to the jewish people as a whole or perhaps to the church as a whole or even to the generation alive at the time when the final signs begin which is a very apocalyptic reading of it that that idea has provided way too much fodder for those who've tried to predict the end (laughs) the end of you know uh, uh, of all things throughout history so 
Another possibility may be that here we have an example of prophetic foreshortening, which is a phenomenon you see regularly in the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible. Um, so, for example, in Isaiah, Isaiah predicts the the catastrophic events of the near future in that Assyria is going to come and conquer Israel, the northern kingdom. Mm-hmm. But but if you look at the passages where Isaiah is talking about that, especially in that Emmanuel passage in Isaiah mm-hmm. six through nine, um, there's all, there are also references to events that seem to be eschatological. And, and so and 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 so the prophetic foreshortening is the fact that in in the prophets these um, near future catastrophic events are placed sort of in juxtaposition with the more eschatological events in a way that seems like they're going to happen sequentially. So you know the oh, Assyria right. is going to come, and then, and then we're going to have the son who's going to be born, who's going to we're, we'll mm-hmm. call him you know right. wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, you know, and all of this. So, so that's just one example. You find this in a variety of places in the Hebrew Bible prophets. And so this could be an example of that here, that perhaps um, Jesus is, you know, he is kind of foreshortening. And we know that, you know, that in this discourse, Jesus is speaking about an event that will happen in the near future that will be catastrophic. Right. But then he's also speaking about eschatological, the eschatological event of the coming of the Son of Man. And Puts these things right. fairly close together, close together. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that could be part of it, you know, is just just to say um, that that Jesus was was doing what the prophets of the Hebrew Bible did as well. Yeah, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I personally see this as I read this statement as a statement of comfort and reassurance that God's purposes will be fulfilled and no one will be left out. Yeah, and that makes sense with with how we understand Scripture as a whole. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so um, the but Matthew and Mark come back in. We have a very similar yes, yes. ending to this. So, um, yeah, in the conclusion to this this particular segment, Luke concludes with words found in Matthew and Mark, pretty much word for word. He, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And that's uh, Luke twenty one thirty three. Now, you know, this sounds like it ought to be a quotation from the Hebrew Bible, but it's not. Yeah, it does echo statements that the word of our God endures forever. For mm-hmm, example, in mm-hmm. Isaiah yep, forty yep. verse eight, um, and interestingly, in First Peter, it's quoted: "The word of the Lord endures forever." Mm, so, mm-hmm. you know, my words will not pass away. I, it's interesting that that Jesus is, is is applying this concept to his own words. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the notion of heaven and earth passing away is definitely an apocalyptic theme. In an apocalyptic mindset, right. the present age is so wicked that the whole of creation has to be destroyed to make way for a new creation that will truly reflect the will of God. But that creates problems with God's faithfulness. Yes, yes. Because time and again in the Hebrew Bible, God promises that he will not destroy the created order. Right, <laughs> so, right. Um, um, this is, this, this, I think we see some apocalyptic ideas, though, creeping in here. Mm-hmm. Now, after this statement, Matthew and Mark also include a saying about how no one knows about the timing of these events, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. I guess as I am thinking about it, it does provide... It provides that vision, if you will, of a beginning, a beginning and an end, mm-hmm. which is, I think, very significant. Obviously, for at least how we understand the world, right? Yeah. Um, it, it 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 makes sense. It makes sense, but it doesn't necessarily have to have the 
the fear, like right. you've pointed out, that, right. that I think people associate. Yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, I think we can say we can say that the current, age, the present age, will come to an end, and we will have an age in which mm-hmm. it's which all things will be made new. But to me, the the new heavens and the new earth that that uh, that are spoken of in Isaiah, for example, right. and that are spoken of in the Book of Revelation, Revelation mm-hmm. um, refers primarily to the renewal of creation, not mm-hmm. the destruction of creation. Yeah. Now, Second Peter does talk about, you know, the elements being melted and, and then a whole new creation being made. But again, I see Second Peter as being a, a heavily influenced by apocalyptic thinking. Right. There's a whole lot in there that I think is incredibly problematic. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, so go on to the final segment of this. Yeah, so the, we, we come down to the final segment of the discourse in all three Gospels, and in all three Gospels, it's, again, it's the same kind of pattern. It's an exhortation to watchfulness, but that's where the similarity ends. While Matthew and Mark both use a parable of the return of a master from a journey and the need for the servants to be alert and faithful about their duties, Luke departs entirely from that and basically composes an entirely different take on this theme, even to the language used to describe watchfulness. Um, the image in Matthew and Mark is one of staying awake, and it's the Greek word gregoreo. Um, but Luke uses the language of taking care, being on guard, and it's the word prosecho. And I think the reason for the language in Matthew and Mark is that the temptation is to grow lax in the face of any delay, while the reason for Luke's language is the temptation to be weighed down, as it says in verse 34, with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, which I find interesting because the language um, is is very similar to the language of 1 Timothy 6, 9, where Paul is talking about to those who are wealthy in this world's term and mm-hmm. warns them that those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires and plunge people into ruin and destruction. So this, this language of being weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and and those being caught unexpectedly as if in a trap by the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, To me, really, I heard an echo of of Paul or at least 1 Timothy um, in Mm -hmm. in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the rationale, again, for for this need to be on guard is unique in Uh in Luke. Um, It will come upon all who live on the face of the whole (laughs) earth. And again, it, it means, you know, the, this, this conclusion, this coming of the Son of Man, mm-hmm. this will be something that will happen that will, that will affect all who live on the face mm-hmm. of the whole earth in verse 35. And I think this seems to be a theme in Luke's gospel because we see this in Luke 17, 24. As mm-hmm. the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. Mm-hmm. And the final word uh, uh, in Luke's discourse is similar. Be alert and pray that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Mm. And again, I think this is a theme that is reflected in Luke. Because when you see at the end of Luke's um, parable of the so-called importunate widow, the widow who won't take no from an answer from the wicked right, judge. Right. Um, the, the conclusion or the moral of the story in, in Luke's gospel is, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he comes again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that seems to be a theme, you know, this idea of having the strength to, to stand and to, and to escape from from the, 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 the hardships that will come. So it's, it's really an encouraging kind of word it is it's meant to encourage i think 
faithful perseverance and discipleship. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, I guess my final question is, when I'm thinking about Luke's audience, does he have a specific, I mean, is this partly towards his audience? Is his audience particularly a need of hearing the gospel in this light? Well, so a lot of people believe that Luke was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Right. We don't have a lot of clues other than that. You know, the, the event of the destruction of Jerusalem would have, I think, reverberated not only across the Jewish communities of the Mediterranean world, but also among the Christian communities, because pretty much all of the Christian communities would have been um, composed of both Jewish and right. Gentile uh, Christian members. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- that would have been an event that would have really shaken probably the whole church as well. And so I think Luke is writing in a time of sort of, um, we might say, dislocation. Yeah. A feeling of dislocation. Mm -hmm. And I think what he's trying to do is provide them with some grounding in their faith. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think that's a a very good explanation. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to uh, take a look at the Reformers now with Christy. And uh, Christy's got some interesting uh, insights into how the Reformers dealt with this passage, and she's brought us one of her wonderful woodcuts to talk I, about. So I look did. for the link. Look for the link on the on the website. We'll have it posted. Yes, yes, and you can have a peek at that. But first, you know, just to dive into this, this is actually an important text because this was used every Advent, but it wasn't used as the first text but the second but the lectionary is not a three-year lectionary it's a one-year lectionary and so people were well familiar and i think it's important to note that again in true form it while they read this particular luke passage they were collapsing everything together Mm -hmm. so in their minds are the details of mark and luke that we talked about and in it is the apocalyptic language not the softening that luke does they don't even hear it because Mm -hmm. in their minds it's just one big text they even bring in john so um I find it interesting that, you know, even when they didn't have, you know, when they had only a one-year lectionary, they used this passage in Advent. In Advent. <laughs> I know. I know. Exactly. So perhaps that con- tradition of connecting, um, you know, Jesus coming at, at his birth with Jesus coming, you know, to, to bring in the kingdom and the end, you know, maybe that was a, one that was made earlier in the it's church. A, it, it is one that's made earlier in the church, and I think that may have been a part of why they continue to do it, right? Because there's such a tradition of it. And yet I remember when I really started paying attention to these things, I always thought, this is kind of an (laughs) advent. I want to think about the baby Jesus coming. And it it seemed, it seemed frightening to me actually um, to think about the, the big, this huge picture. Now I think it's better, but, Mm -hmm. but at that time I remember, I, I don't know how old I was, but I'm like, I, I'm thinking about the baby Jesus. Right, right. <laughs> so um, the, in, in this time period, there is a, actually a great concern about um, the, the coming events and the apocalypse. And I think 
you know, as the church has, we, we've talked about the, the crisis of the late Middle Ages um, and uh, really the kinds of things that are, that are going on in the historical world in their, in their lives. And we have the Hundred Years' War, we have the Papal Schism, we've got the Black Death. I mean, people are dying everywhere. So you've got this kind of panic and people are wondering, are these the portents? Mm-hmm. Is this the end? So this is kind of part of the mindset and great fear for everything they see going on around them. Um, so it really is... Yeah, Part so of the fear th- this of age. would be the distress among the nations and people mm-hmm. confused by the roaring exactly. of the sea and the waves, exactly. and fainting from fear and foreboding of what is coming. You know, that sounds like you know, right. <laughs> sounds a lot like that. And they tended to look for exact things. They saw look uh, like Martin Bootser. I our Reformation commentaries had several of our different reformers, and Martin Bootser, for example, says that we should assume these events will happen. But we don't necessarily know how. But Bullinger adds that these events will come in order, <laughs> and so they have. They really are thinking of this in terms of that we can kind of predict. This is a timeline. It's a timeline, yeah. right? Um, and I, I just I, I have to chuckle at that because you know it. Again, I mean, it, to me, to take that timeline approach makes it totally irrelevant to anybody but those who are living in the timeline. Exactly. Well, and I've, I've talked about before, you know, we've had people predicting exact times. Um, Michael Stifel, I bring up my friend again because it just amuses me. I mean, this mathematician who's figured out the exact day and time. Yeah. And, and so... Um, well, my, again, my basic, my basic assumption when coming to Scripture is that the Gospel of Luke was written and had a message. It was a word from God to the community of that day in the first century. You know, they're really not, they really aren't thinking in that, those terms. They're looking, yeah. they're really looking for what it says to them now. Right, right. And I think that's a challenge. We've just talked about, we're, we're, we're at the beginnings of kind of a more modern exegesis, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And so you see, I really see it with this passage, um, this kind of, kind of uh, tension. Almost, almost excessive literalism. And, and particularly here. Yeah. And particularly here. And I, it's not everywhere. Um, but here, and, and even this theology that goes out the window. So, for example, um, when you're looking at the Reformed idea of the elect, you know, the, the words the elect come out. But then all you hear about and how you have to work your way up and you have to be showing you're doing these good works. And I'm like, everything is just, even the theology has gone bad. Now, I apologize. I did not read... Calvin specifically, who I am guessing is in a little better shape I'm than some of these would folks be. I think would from be. what we've learned before. I, I think one of the things, too, I think one of the things that's going on in this era, you know, I, I taught the course on hermeneutics, and part of this was a history of hermeneutics. Part of what's going on in this era is that the ref- reformers were reacting against the excessive allegorism in the Catholic exactly. tradition. And so they, they almost went too far on the, some of them almost went too far on the they, other extreme exactly. being excessively literal well and also you know we are again looking at a collection of folks here and, and i only read a handful of of, of these um, translations of these different reformers that had really different takes you kind of see a large a large bunch of ideas out there so mm-hmm. and knowing that Calvin, for example, is a second-generation reformer, and he's a little bit more sophisticated, as we've talked. He's probably in a little bit better space. Although, I'm not going to, you know, automatically assume that he doesn't have some of this language, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
but I think it's so this, they, they did all, uh, several of them jump into the fig tree analysis. Of course, that's what Bollinger suggests to say that it's going to go in order because the bud becomes bigger and turns into fruit <laughs> and all these things. And so there's this, there's this pattern. Goodness. Oh, yeah, well, you know. Um, and there is definitely a sense that springtime is an easier time to live than winter. And, and they even pull out this idea of never-ending summers, which I personally identify with, of course, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but, um, you know, if, I think there is this, this sense of, um, it, because the images of distress and roaring sea is unparalleled with the joy of spring buds. And mm. I'm quoting here, as we think more and more, signs occur that the kingdom of God is much closer, which is the eternal, eternal spring and summer. Mm. So that's Bollinger. Um, and uh, summer will never come to an end. And I think, you know, when we live inside and we don't have to worry about our food sources and that we have these nice central heaters and that we, you know, don't have to go out to the outhouse um, and all these things that make our lives pretty easy in the winter, we forget how hard it is in the 16th century. And winter really is a time when you're not sure if you have enough stores to make it through. And I was telling Alan about this. There's, a, um, there's been some research done to show that really there's a, about a 500-year span that's known as the Little Ice Age, which is right during the 16th century, where they are estimating that the, the t average temperature was about one and a half degrees less um, than it was after and before. And of course, being in a time of climate change right now, we are very aware of what one or two degrees can do. Surely. They, and while people weren't you know, obviously noticing, oh my gosh, it's really been cooler for the last 50 years. <laughs> they did, um, there is some belief that impacted um, their agricultural yields. Um, and um, that also, like today, um, had some impact on extremes of, of weather, um, more droughts, for example. Mm. Um, and again, um, the book that I'm re specifically referencing is Brian Fagan's The Little Ice Age and How the Climate Made History, written in 2000, I think. Um, and this, this book has, <laughs> has drawn some controversy uh, um, with the kind of contemporary world and our talk of um, climate patterns. But uh, what he's trying to do is to say, look, how climate impacts history. It impacts how we live because we have to respond um, in, we have to respond to what's around us. I mean, you know, if things are, our, if our yields are less or if our growing seasons are less, it impacts how we live. And so there really was a very want for um, and very need during the winter. Well, and you think you think just about um, food supply, heating, you know, uh, just being able to survive right. was not necessarily a given. Exactly, exactly. So um, it's kind of an interesting how this you know, kind of goes then to this fig tree image of this summer, mm -hmm. when spring and summer when, you know, there's, there's fruit hanging off the tree that you can gather and when, um, you know, you can begin to plant and you can be, reliably expect food to come and, and these things that make life easier, you sure. know, and I think we all have probably familiar with the early 16th century Renaissance music, you know, I've talked about plucking berries all the time and, 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 and even in our fairy mm. tales, you know, mm. oh, I went out gathering wild berries and so images of spring and summer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So they are looking for specific signs. Um, again, um, 
they believe these signs are going to happen and the, the, and, 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 but they're looking for, okay, now what are the specific signs? And Luther's not, um, or Luther is part of this, this collection. And so Luther pulls up this idea um, that really the one he's thinking of is the great alignment of planets in 1524. Mm. And that's what I pulled up our little image about. Um, and this is from a publication which I, I don't have the actual book, but based on its title, I'm guessing it was published in about 1522. Um, mm. it, because this is two years of preparation uh, for this... Um, um, this great and uh, mag- uh, magnificent aligning of the planets. They're, they're actually coming together within the constellation of Pisces. Even though we're on the edge of the scientific revolution, planets and, and heavenly bodies have been very carefully documented and accurate. So you could look at the stars, you would recognize your constellations, and you would recognize the movement. So this is actually kind of pretty well done by this point with the naked eye that they have mm-hmm. been able to sure. see these things, and they know there's movement. But to have them align in Pisces was a big deal. So, so it's this interesting kind of intersection between not yet science, but yet we still have the, like the observation of science, but not yet the, the mathematical theory of science. Astronomical observations with astrological interpretations exactly. added to them. Exactly, yeah. yes. <laughs> so the, the idea with this is a flood pours from it, sweeping away a small group of houses and people. And I, I'm going to have us um, describe this here, but it was believed that the world was begun when the planets were in conjunction with Aries a starting point of the Zodiac. Mm. And so what happens, it seemed possible to them that the world could end when the conjunction took place in Pisces, the end of the Zodiac. So this thing is, is published. This is just one of them, but there are all kinds of pamphlets that were bringing out that 1524 was when, this, when this, everything aligned, that the big flood was happening. And mm. we know... Um, so people started to prepare. Some people built houses with little turrets, and they all were going to gather up there with mm. stuff to maybe survive it. But I, I found um, information that about 20,000 people actually left London knowing that the Thames was going to be flooding. Um, it was just really, really crazy. Um, uh, again, this was thought to have been the beginning of the end. This was mm. amazing. <laughs> It seems almost silly to us, but um, in, in, in Germany and Italy, they actually built arcs. <laughs> so that they could ride out the flood. Yeah. It was going to be that kind of a flood. Huh? It was going to be that kind of a flood. <laughs> oh um, and of course, when it didn't happen, and this all the time, you know, it, it really is causing people are even understanding scripture right. And I think... Um, I, I think we can see it on this kind of timeline of moving from um, the decline of magic, Keith Thomas again, you know, religion, decline of magic, and we're beginning to see more people pushing towards more sophisticated scientific kinds of explanations and kind of less impact on um, uh, supernatural mm-hmm. kinds of things. And, and so you get this kind of, kind of um, balance. But what's interesting, I think, is important um, unlike what we even might hear in some conservative circles today, there was not really initially a conflict between pursuing scientific things and religious things because it was understood that right. God was 
behind all the laws. Well, theology was the queen right. of sciences and the foundation for right. the university. Yeah. But the the problem started to hit when the um, scientific di- ideas really, really threw the whole worldview into right. into chaos. For example, you know, when your whole cosmos is based on kind of this flat worldview, and then you actually have get this is where Galileo comes right. in proving. Uh, well, we're the not, earth is, the, the earth, earth is, is not the center of the universe. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and proving it and, yeah. and proving these, these moving bodies around it, all of a sudden you have a problem because you can't make sense of a worldview that, you know, if you will, the sun sets and the sun goes down, which right. we, we still use, right? right? We know the sun doesn't do anything. Right. <laughs> it's us, you know, right. so. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. So let's take a peek at our um, wonderful flood image here that Alan and I are going to look at. Um, so again, this is a woodcut, and um, you know, Alan, what I guess what do we see at the top of this thing? Well, you've got you've got a big fish, and <laughs> and you've got you've got um, the sun um, um, clearly depicted, and then you've got the moon fairly largely, and then you've got five. St- you know, stars that have different symbols, obviously for the planets. Uh, I guess that was the, the extent of their understanding of the planets right. was that there were five of them. Mm-hmm. And, and from, from this fish is this, you know, just um, flood of water coming down and it's, you know, wiping out buildings and you see some people floating in it. And yeah, it looks pretty, it's pretty terrible actually. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And then, and then on the, on the right hand side, you see you the see, Pope. You see the Pope. You see somebody holding a, wearing a crown and holding a scepter, so apparently a king. You see people who are look like they're upper class or bishops mm-hmm, or somehow, mm-hmm. you know, they're involved. And on, on, on the other side, you see, looks like just common people. Yeah. And they've all got um, farm implements, and they've got a white flag, and I don't know if they're if they're um, if they're going to war or if they're surrendering. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that the belief is, from what I have read, is that they were headed to war. That this was going to be an uprising against the aristocracy. That's, ah. that's a little bit well. Early and, the and in the background, you've got a, a guy playing a, a fife and a guy playing a drum. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah, that the war cry um, that the world as we have known it is going to be turned upside down. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's that, here's that violent revolution Uh that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So it's pretty, I mean, and as I said, this is just one of many such publications that came out. Um, but, uh, well, and it's, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that the, you know, the, 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 the king and the Pope and the people who were, you know, all on, on the one side, they, they look pretty confident in themselves and they look pretty unconcerned about the people who are being swept away by the flood. Right. Yeah. And the, the guys, the guys on the other side, they look like they're pretty disgruntled. Uh, yeah. I, I think so too. And mind you, this is um, 1522, and you're having waves of these peasant uprisings anyway mm-hmm. um, in Europe. And in fact, of course, the big one that we all talk about is the one in 1525. That's okay. the one that that, bec- that completely erupts throughout Europe. But it's not set alone. Some people think it is. But there's, there's a lot of peasants being unhappy, and there's a lot of explanations why. Um, some of it tied in just simply they're not getting enough food to feed their families mm-hmm. and there's 
a lot of the aristocracy begins to do enclosures, so they're taking away basically common fields that peasants can feed their families off of. And so there's a lot of um, discontent. Plus, as again, some people think because peasants now um, are getting some uh, encouragement, if you will, to be able to read, to be able to interpret. This is before Luther's going to come down with his catechisms on how to read the Bible. So there's this empowerment um, of equality that, that is beginning to seep down to them. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, yeah, this is pretty specific, and it looks, you know, it looks like, it, you know, if you're living in these times, and you see, if I were living in these times, and I saw this pamphlet being published, you know, I would think, wow, uh, the end of the world is is at hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You you really would, and especially when you saw more than one coming out, it's it's right. it's pretty fearful. So. Anyway, um, just giving you an idea of how this kind of scripture um, begins to impact how they seem to look at the, what's going on around them and, and how they are taking anything they can to fit into obvious signs that they're seeing that, that they're predicting from the scripture. So. You know, my question is, what would have been the motivation of these reformers for being so obsessed with these specific signs that's a good question i i think they don't really have a, a good sense i mean remember except for calvin they're not really doing systematic theology yeah, yet so yeah. I, I think they're i think in this case they try to they they don't know how to make sense of it and so therefore it must be it, understood this way yeah well and you you mentioned a couple weeks ago there was one who advocated violent revolution mm -hmm. so maybe some of them would have been yeah. would have been pushing for that others mm -hmm. i would think may have been hopefully they would have heard the message of calm in in this even in this discourse right. and would have tried to reassure people and and you know that that uh, they belong to Christ, right? Right. It, it, it just, just. I think there's just really a mix, and I think it just really shows you that they're all in this process of working out what they understand, mm. and so you've got. But they haven't come to the end result. They haven't of that yet. come to the end result, and it's yeah. all mixed between their own Bible reading, what they grew up with, especially when you're talking about early reformers. Yeah. Um, what which was Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism. Um, what they're working out with their humanist background, um, you know, and it's all kind of coming to a head here. And then you've got the political stuff going on around you. And so it's kind of like the, the logic process kind of falls apart here. And I, I think we see that today as well. When we, we just, we, we're, we're tempted to run to fear um, for some reason. It really I think us. it's, you know, I think it's hard for the average person today to imagine just what a time of of tumult mm. this was. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we think of ourselves as living through tumultuous times. And, of course, the pace of change and technology and, and just there, there is a lot going on, yes, mm -hmm. in our world. Mm -hmm. But it's not like we have a 100 years war. Um, mm -hmm. We have the COVID pandemic, but I don't know that the numbers even approach the, the numbers of the Black well, Plague. And at least we have the science to right. understand what's going on, whereas right. the plague... It must be a curse of God. It must be a curse of God, right? Yeah. And and then you've got all these other things where they don't have enough food and they they are, you know, just basically fighting for survival. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's a it's a it's a 
tumultuous time. And I yeah. think we forget that sometimes when yeah. we're reading this. So no, it's no wonder the pamphlet makers were, were making money off of this stuff. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So this is a pretty interesting, um, anyway, it becomes a pretty interesting text and one that mm. really everyone is in some way, shape or form familiar with. And I say that not in its nuance, just in its overall prediction. Right. 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 Yeah. I, I have to say, you know, I'm continually amazed uh, at these at these illustrations that you pull out and how they just give us a window on, um, you know, what was going on in the in the Reformation era. It is just it's mind blowing, really. It's mind boggling that people really were were caught up in all this stuff. But yeah. Of course, a lot of people. Today still today do. still yeah. are doing it today, yeah. and when you're talking about even a less educated group of people, and you don't have the science to explain it, and you can get caught up in the horror of it all, you know, something as big as the alignment of stars in Pisces, right. Um, right. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, that's where people that's where people go. So, yeah, all right. Well, thanks. Thanks. Hi everybody. We we are back and as we have come around and we've seen <laughs> we've seen this terrible flood and all these things happening, you know, ultimately we're coming I'm coming back to oh my gosh, I have to preach this thing. And <laughs> as a pastor and thinking, "Oh my gosh, how do I preach this in Advent?" And as we were talking in our little break here, I think the real theme from this is watchfulness. But but I wanted to go a little bit deeper into where does this idea of watchfulness come from? Well, um, again, as I mentioned, um, you know, it, it is a New Testament concept because um, part of it is this, there is this awareness on the part of the believers in the New Testament era that, you know, Jesus has ascended, right? Mm -hmm. And and so they are living sort of in between the times, you know, Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen again, he's ascended to the right hand of God, he reigns from the right hand of God, and at some point, he will come and establish his reign on earth. But they don't really, you know, initially they think, well, this is going to happen any day. But as the years drag on, you know, there seems to be more of this sense of, of settling in for um, the path of, of being faithful as Christians um, while they are, they are um, watching for this mm -hmm. time of, mm -hmm. of Christ's return. And so the, the, the language really in the New Testament is the language that Mark and Matthew use. It's the verb gregoreo, which, um, the, uh, you know, gregoreo means to be sober. Mm -hmm. So the opposite of it could mean to be drunk. Mm -hmm. Or gregoreo means to be awake. And the opposite it would mean to mm -hmm. be asleep, mm -hmm. and so either either way, you know, you're you know, if you're if you're drunk or if you're if you're dozing and sleeping, you're not fully consciously aware of of you know how am I living my life each day, you know, how right. am I carrying right. out my discipleship to Christ, how am I being faithful to Christ in my life. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to be the theme in the New Testament uh, in relation to the coming of Christ to, to establish right. his and reign. Right, and I, I like that as an Advent theme when you really think about it, because 
in the practicality is how many of us get so distracted at this time of year that we really aren't focusing. We're not really being watchful. We're not really thinking about our discipleship. We're just really pulled every other direction. Um, and so these are themes that really, I mean, and there's a bit of a, there's, this isn't a light, that's all light and fluffy. I mean, this is really a, it, it, it's comforting, but it's also kind of a get yourself focused kind of thing. Yes, indeed, because you know the the com- you know the, the reality of discipleship is one that will involve um, hardship. It will, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. as 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 people who live in the on this earth, we will not be somehow magically immune from the times of tumult and the times of upheaval that the rest of the world is going through, and we mm-hmm. see that right now. You know that that we're not immune from that, um, and so. Because, you know, I think, I think the, one of the points of this discourse in the Gospels is to say, look, there's some things that are, you're going to have to deal with that are going to test you. Mm-hmm. And, and they may test you to your very limits. Um, but then you have, again, you have in all three of the discourses, you have something to the effect of the one who endures to the end will be saved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea is, you know, you, you don't let these, you don't let these, um, this turmoil or, or these um, dislocations, you don't let them distract you from your faith, but you continue to focus on Christ and focus on your discipleship yeah. uh, faithfully and, and, and consistently. Wait, yeah, I like that. It, 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 really, it really actually, I, sorry, this is like a processing for me, but it really ties me into the human reality that our mm. lives are not just simple and nice and easy and that Scripture does in its entirety explain and and walk with us in these times of great calamity um, and and encouraging us to carry on our faith. When I think a lot of people said, well, if everything's not just happy and joyful and perfect, then obviously I don't have any faith anymore. And they drop it instead of persevering through it. And um, I mean, this is is actually really... (laughs) It's like, a, I feel like I'm in, and I just think we really tend to look at Christmas time as being so light. I mean, as a, as a society, and really to dig here and put us into the space of um, your life isn't going to be that happy and, and perfect, but that if you remain, you know, remain, God is right there for you. Rem- right, remain watchful. Right, right. Well, and I will say, you know, in my experience as a pastor, preaching texts like this at Advent, you know, you, you kind of have to be aware of your audience. Well, <laughs> and and the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, I have always found that there are, that most of the people I've preached to in Advent aren't really interested in hearing about the, the challenge of discipleship. They want to sing happy Christmas carols and they want to hear about the baby Jesus, kind of like you did when you were younger. (laughs) But when you come in with this theme of watchfulness, it seems to take off the edge that discipleship might have in their minds, but also help focus. And there's, there's a kind of a, a well, beauty about the the word watchfulness. Yeah, and I, you know, I think as as we're talking, I mean, I think the word that comes to mind is the word of living intentionally, and that's something that people are aware of, right? right. We do all kinds of things intentionally these right. days, and and living intentionally might be something that would that would be a helpful connection. I, I just, I just, I you know, I, I can picture certain individuals that I've preached to, you know, <laughs> and and um, earlier on in my career. 
I, I, you know, this has to do with Advent hymns versus Christmas carols. Right, right. <laughs> and earlier on in my career, I really tried to stick with the Advent hymns and, and the Advent themes and, and tried to hold off on the celebration mm-hmm. until Christmas Eve. And these days, you know, I think... I, I reserve the first Sunday of Advent for Advent hymns only, and I go ahead and I go ahead and let them have some Christmas, right? You know, by the second Sunday I, of Advent, think, because they just they, they well, in their minds in their mind you know they, in their minds the Christmas season begins on the exactly. day after Thanksgiving. That's exactly how we've been discipled, to in in many many ways, or I, I guess the secular culture has, has guided us to that. So that's kind of how we expect it to be. And I do think when you bring in any seeker who might just, what is this all about? Right. And they, they don't hear it. They're going to be really confused. And I, I do think that's okay. I think as long as, well, as long I, as we do one at, I, I like Advent. I like Advent so much I do better too. than Christmas I do carols, I do but too. beside the point. Well, the, you know, and I think part of the connection here with Luke is that you do have sort of this reassuring tone in Luke's version yes. of this discourse. You know, I, when I have preached this passage before, I have emphasized the, the verse, you know, now when these things begin to place take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing, drawing near. And so that sense of anticipation right. that salvation is near, right. you know, that's a theme that people can kind of connect with as a Christmas theme, even mm-hmm. though it's more advent <laughs> right yeah. yeah yeah you know and we're sort of in this dual space you know because as a pastor i'm very much in the advent watchfulness and preparation mm-hmm. i'm very much into that but um the people you know the, the they they've got their christmas trees up the weekend after thanksgiving if not before and and they're ready to celebrate christmas and what i'm trying to say here is we have to find a way i think to try to uh, present the Advent theme of watchfulness and intentional expectation and those kinds of things um, in a way that people who are already celebrating Christmas can hear. Right. Exactly. Because exactly. O- otherwise, you're, you're kind of you're kind of just going preaching over their heads. Right. Uh, no, I agree a hundred percent. You know, I I, I think. I think actually of, of what we've talked about, at least in this case, that Luke might be uh, the easier one to do than Matthew Surely. and Mark. Thanks, Thanks. Alan. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.